0: This installment of "Witness to Yesterday," the podcasts of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshalden, and I'm at the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. There are a handful of undergraduate history textbooks focusing on post-war Canada that are available to professors and students. However, the book we are going to talk about today is unique in its approach. This book is Recreation. Fragmentation and Resilience Canada since 1945. It was published by Oxford University Press in 2017. And it was written by Dimitri Anastakis, the L.R. Wilson, R.J. Curry Chair in Canadian Business History in the Department of History and the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Professor Anastakis joins me today in the studio. Dimitri, welcome to Witness to Yesterday.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Greg. Thank you.
0: First, uh, let me say that this is a book that is not solely about business history. Of course, there is some economics and some business history, but there's also a survey of the post-war history of the family Uh, environmental uh, movement, culture, sports, immigration, federalism, provincialism, intergovernmentalism, indigenous self-government, social policy, and foreign policy. How did you pull all of that off?
1: Well, it's a bit of a juggling act to try to keep all those issues in the air across a whole bunch of themes – from 1945 right up until the present day. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to break from traditional post-45 examinations of Canada and root that whole story in within itself, i.e. Canada was recreated in the post-war period It went through a difficult time of fragmentation, and and it had a resilience. And the title is The Thesis of the Book. Breaking it across all these different themes was a struggle organizationally, as you can imagine, because most of the books that look at Canada since 1945 are done in a chronological way. They're done very thematic in the sense that they go from period to period to period across a chronology, often using prime ministers or political framing. And I wanted to do something a little bit different because I think students are not necessarily less interested in politics but can be more drawn into understanding the past by looking at different themes and issues that speak to them more directly.
0: So what are the strengths and weaknesses of this highly thematic approach?
1: The strengths are that, uh, as I said, you get to a foreshadow and forefront issues that really can uh, speak to students' interests. So there are a whole range of issues that are covered in the book, uh, from environmentalism to indigenous issues to uh, culture to uh, migration and identity. And these are themes that are are really accessible for students in a way that politics and chronologies don't seem to be because uh, you can really grab uh, students with that. I mean, that's, I think that's a real strength of the book, being able to kind of be more topical in a way, uh, to speak to some of the issues that are going on in our own time and, you know, uh, reach back into history and contextualize them and say to students, you know, this issue of identity or migration or race is important in Canada and it's framed and contextualized by all the things that have happened in the past. And here's a way of looking at those things that have happened. So I think that is a strength. The challenge of writing a book like that is that when you take away the chronology and do it thematically you've actually got like ten mini chronologies and ten themes that are competing with your words. (laughs) You only have so many words and you have to uh, be very Uh, judicious in how you foreshadow and draw back certain issues across the themes of the book. So, uh, you know, you might start off, uh, the first chapter uh, does talk about a lot of the things that are going on in the 40s and the 50s, but by the end of the chapter, you're right up until the present day, and then you've got to start again in the next chapter doing this. So the... the weakness or the challenge that you face is that there's a potential for a lot of overlap. And you really have to be aware of everything that you're writing across the 10 chapters all at once because you can't say, oh, I'm going to write this part up and then put it aside because you're going to return to those chronological bits later on in another chapter. So it makes it a little bit challenging and it runs the risk of being repetitious a little bit, but I think I've avoided that.
0: Well, one of the uh, aspects of this is that it It seems to be very driven by contemporary issues, concerns, policy problems, etc. So how do you, uh, in one sense, take advantage of that? Because that can very much draw students in. And on the other hand, play the traditional role of the historian, which is to distance yourself a little bit from the present and focus on the past for the sake of focusing on the past.
1: Well, you know, it's easy to kind of hook students in uh, if you're talking about issues that are topical in the uh, instant, in the moment that we're here. Uh, That automatically attracts them to the reading and the book, but it also has the risk of instantly being dated or being wrong. So, uh, you know, I was writing this book right at a time when Donald Trump was appearing on the scene and he'd actually won the election. And it could have been easy for me to almost start every chapter by talking about how Donald Trump and his relationship to Canada was going to change the dynamic around race or culture or trade. But I wanted to strike that balance and say, hey, uh, this is topical and recent, and history speaks to all of us, history is within all of us, history is our lived experience every day, and you can connect to it by breaking these themes into something that is manageable and accessible. But also play that role of being a little bit more distant and saying, uh, we're going to strike a balance here. And in talking about Justin Trudeau and the cabinet that he created in 2015, which was gender balanced and very diverse, and being able to talk about that so students can access that, but making them realize that this is part of a long-term evolution, change over time. And you can contrast it by, for example, uh, having the Mackenzie King cabinet of 1945 be shown in the book at the same time. So I've got pictures there, one which depicts the trio cabinet of 2015 and another that shows the King cabinet of 1945. So I'm trying to do both things there, be a little bit topical, but also talk about change over time in a way that provides the information that students get, but also tells the story of change. So what motivated you to write this textbook in the first place? I've always felt that part of my mandate as a historian is to try to make history accessible to people, not just in classrooms and not just fellow scholars who are writing about different aspects that I'm focused upon, but to make history as as wide-ranging and as accessible as possible. And I had written a previous textbook, which was a Canada Since 1945, which was a book called Death in the Peaceful Kingdom, Canadian History Through Murder, Execution, Assassination and Suicide, in which I used these different hooks to try to, you know, make history a little bit more lively in a way and make people recognize that Canadian history is actually a lot more interesting than the kind of traditional narrative that people have, oh, Canadian history. And the next project that I had in terms of writing a textbook and writing a book that was not just a textbook but was a general reader for people was to look at Canada since 1945 Uh, I was asked to do this but I'd been thinking about doing this for a long time because in our profession there are uh, quite a few good books that deal with Canada since 1945 but there hadn't been any recently and all of them fell into that traditional structure of doing a chronology where you start uh, you know, the end of the King era and then Louis Saint Laurent and then and Diefenbaker, and Pearson, and Trudeau, and you kind of like follow that traditional order. And I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to do something completely different in terms of its structure and in terms of the way you impart history. The other thing that I wanted to do that was a little bit different was in making 10 themes, I wanted to make it teachable in the sense that this is accessible for teachers in terms of assigning the chapters from the book because you know most of the time when we teach if you're not teaching in a survey and surveys are often traditionally chronological but if you're teaching in a an upper year or graduate class that is post 45 Canada more often than not you do themes you actually do look at themes like the environment or gender, or race, or class, or whatever that issue is. And by making it thematic, I thought it would be a little bit more complementary to the way that syllabi are structured and the way that people actually structure the teaching that they do.
0: So, we have 10 themes, and uh, we're not going to be able to cover all 10 today. But can you summarize them for us uh, in about one or two sentences each? And then I'm going to ask you some questions about each. But what I really want is a very high level summary for all of our listeners.
1: Okay, well, it's a, it's a bit of a task, but I'm going to try my best here. So the first chapter is basically a kind of recreating Canada through an infrastructure and technological imperative. When I talk about the Trans-Canada Highway and I talk about Air Canada, I talk about building Canada, including adding Newfoundland. The second chapter is about the welfare state, which is also part of building Canada in a kind of social policy framework. The third chapter looks at family, which is a foundational aspect of how we understand Canada. And then there are chapters on culture, chapters on Indigenous Canada, which I actually pushed to the end of the book because most books start with Indigenous issues as though, you know, once we get rid of them, we're we're done. That's not true. It's an aspect of our lives that is very important. Along with Indigenous, I talked about the economy. I talked about Foreign policy. Uh, I think that might be all of them. That might be 10. I may have missed one. That's
0: all right. I'm going to try to cover anything that you've missed. So, you describe the uh, Canadian welfare state project after the war as uh, very much a liberal, that is, small l, a liberal affair. Indeed, it's a very cautious affair until the Pearson government. What did you really mean by this? Uh, because obviously it's a debatable proposition. And were there any exceptions to this before the Pearson government to this very, very cautious approach?
1: It is pretty cautious. Coming out of the war, uh, you know, there's a kind of a, a big bang of Keynesianism that liberal governments do embrace to some degree, and there are measures that are put in place around social welfare policy, but they're focused and directed. There's the Veterans Charter. There's a baby boom, sorry, baby bonus. There are some measures that uh, do kind of appear, but it's uh, incrementalism that reflects prosperous society that is uh, gaining the benefits of a booming economy, a booming population, and there isn't as much of an emphasis on stark, uh, deep welfare state projects. Of course, there's pressure to do so. There's a lot of activists uh, different organizations, stakeholders who are pushing this. So there's a kind of a slow build, I would say, that uh, you see kind of scaffolding across the way to build towards the bigger projects in the 1960s. So uh, you might not get Medicare until the late 1960s, but you certainly have uh, emergency hospital insurance, and you might have you might not have Canada Pension Plan, but you do have a more limited old age pension in the 1950s. So uh, there's a kind of incrementalism that goes on that is accelerated by the 1960s, which is also influenced by outside factors. I mean, the United States is going through its own great society projects. Uh, Canada has been building towards these ideas. And by the 1960s, you do have a, a full-fledged policy and public demand for these kinds of major welfare state projects.
0: So when I was reading the book, uh chapter on the family and sexual politics, what struck me was that uh, I probably could have been reading about uh, any Western European country or the United States or uh, Australia. So were we just a variant, a, a modest variant of what was happening in other places? Or was there anything truly unique about what was transpiring in Canada in terms of the evolution of the family and attitudes uh, towards uh,
1: sex, in particular, uh, lesbian, gay rights. Well, I think uh, Canada's unique position, kind of being in that North Atlantic triangle, being both in the the 1950s and 1960s, both deeply influenced by the United States and deeply influenced by its mother country of the United Kingdom, That's actually what makes it unique in a sense, Uh, being influenced and uh, being exposed and realizing what's going on in these different countries. So on LGBTQ rights uh, in the 1960s, there's a kind of revolution going on, much broader civil rights revolution in all kinds of different areas. But for LGBTQ rights, uh, Canada is being deeply influenced by events going on in the United Kingdom. So, uh, you know, Pierre Trudeau's famous omnibus bill to decriminalize homosexual acts occurs at a time when there are similar uh, legislative initiatives being brought forth in the United Kingdom. So we're still being deeply influenced by our connection to our mother country. At the same time, you know, Canadians are not blind. They see events like the Stonewall uh, riots in New York City, where there's a full-throated demand for equality for the LGBT community. And the Canadian kind of perspective is influenced by both of these and shaped by both of these which fits within a broader pattern in Western society of embracing, recognizing, and moving towards equality, uh, which is a long standing kind of development. Now, I will say one place that Canada does kind of stick out is in the acceptance of same sex marriage as the first major G7 country to uh, legalize uh, same sex marriage. You know, whether or not that's a Kind of outlier that is a reflection of deeper Canadian values around diversity, multiculturalism, acceptance, or whether it's a consequence of the fact that Canada was, uh, you know, had a perspective that looked at these other countries and was willing to do things a little bit differently. Again, that's up to debate. But there is one clear kind of example where Canada is a leader on uh, on this aspect, and it falls into a broader kind of series of places where Canada is a leader. Canada is the first country in the world to have multiculturalism officially within its constitution. And to have a multiculturalism act, Canada is the first country in the world to have Minister of the Environment. Uh, So there are a number of places where in the post-war period, Canada is sure taking and seeing what's going on in other countries. The EPA in the United States is created before the Ministry of the Environment in Canada, but also moving forward in its own kind of unique way.
0: It's certainly ahead of the curve in a few key areas. So one of my favorite chapters is actually your chapter on the post-war cultural history of Canada. Now, would it be fair to say that a vibrant French-Canadian culture and English-Canadian culture really emerged in the 1960s and 70s? And if it did, to what extent was it nourished or not by the cultural policies of the day, I mean, the, the state played a pretty heavy role during that time. Uh, were the two connected, or did that culture emerge largely on its own and then was fortified to some extent by government policy?
1: Oh, it's a chicken and the egg kind of uh, question, and I think it's both. You know, state policies uh, going back to the 1950s, going back to the Massey Commission, state uh, support for cultural events from the Canada Council to the Stratford Festival, Uh, state policies around uh, CanCon, Canadian content around radio and television, Uh, state policies around movies not so successful, state policies around publishing... All help to incubate a kind of a booming culture that emerges in the post-war period that's driven by demographics with the baby boom, that's driven by wealth and the prosperity of the post-war period. And it's also driven by a kind of newfound confidence that Canadians have, both in French-speaking Canada and English-speaking Canada, in which you know, there's an embrace of identity. You know, we're all familiar with the quiet revolution and the kind of cultural revolution that goes on in Quebec An equally vibrant cultural revolution goes on in Canada. And I talk about, you know, historians like Ryan Edwardson, who have written about the boom in CanCon that is supported by the state, but also just kind of appears indigenously as a, not a reaction to, you know, trying to be different in the United States. But there's a kind of critical mass of artists, writers that appear in the 60s and the 70s that are writing about Canada, that are interested in Canada, that is consequently both a product of and uh, something that helps push along this nationalism that emerges in the 60s that really does uh, see its kind of flourishing in the 80s and the 90s with a, a kind of constellation of Canadian culture. A lot of it is state supported, but a lot of it is actually just Indigenous. Canadians want to hear their voices in different ways. Uh, Sometimes they're better at getting their voices across than in other places, but they are, by and large, expressing themselves pretty loudly, both in French Canada and English Canada. So let me switch
0: now to one of your themes that you didn't mention earlier, but I want to remind you of, and that was immigration and how it changed the basic character of Canada, I think, more than it changed the character of the United States and many Western European countries so, what in your view was the key policy that put Canada on this trajectory of a high immigration as well as multiculturalism?
1: Well, certainly the changes that the Diefenbaker government implements in 1962 are around trying to move towards a colorblind non-race, non-country quota immigration system uh, really gets the ball rolling. It's further pushed along by the 1967 changes to the Immigration Act that the Pearson government institutes. Uh, but you see, uh, and you know, in a lot of the narratives, Pearson gets more credit for doing this because more of the immigrants come after the Pearson changes. But it's really the Diefenbaker government that breaks uh, that kind of Racist immigration policy in terms of preventing certain people from certain countries coming en masse. And once we get into a colorblind immigration policy in the 1960s and the 1970s, the dynamic changes. I mean, Canada already had a very diverse multicultural heritage, uh, one that was less colorful in the sense that it wasn't visible minorities, but certainly was uh, from a broad range of countries. And at the core of Canada is, of course, the diversity of Indigenous peoples, French original settlers in Quebec and elsewhere, and English-speaking settlers. But then there was many, many waves in the 19th and 20th centuries of non-French, non-British, European settlers and from other places. So Canada's had a long diversity. I mean, there have been vibrant Sikh communities in British Columbia for more than a century. There have been black communities in southwestern Ontario and in uh, eastern Canada for hundreds of years. But the big bang of immigration policy changes in the 1960s really reframes that dynamic. And it happens at a time when Canadians are thinking about their identity and seeking to kind of uh, understand themselves better. So when the, you know, one of the big three commissions that the Pearson government puts together, Royal Commissions on uh, the bilingualism, biculturalism, the status of women, and... Well, I can't remember the third one now, but it'll come to me. Uh, the BMB Commission asks about uh, biculturalism, bilingualism, but others in Canada, especially the Ukrainian community, say, well, it's not just about French and English. There are others here. And that sets this idea of multiculturalism in place. So there's a kind of dramatic moment uh, between the late 60s and the early 70s where the BMB Commission uh, releases its report and Trudeau walks into the House of Commons in 1971. Pierre Trudeau, and gives a speech saying that going forward, Canada is going to operate on the context of being a multicultural nation with a bilingual framework and language. And that kind of moment really helps to solidify the reality of immigration change that's going on, which in the 1970s and the 1980s is totally recreated because we have so much immigration from non-traditional sources, Southeast Asia, Africa, China become all places where we become huge uh, magnets for migration, which changes the the framework, the the fabric of the country. I myself am the product of this multicultural boom. My parents came here in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh, So, you know, when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm speaking through lived experience. I'm a person who was born in Canada, but my framing is understanding Canada through the lens of multiculturalism.
0: Now, uh, one of the things that multiculturalism and immigration doesn't address, of course, is the uh, issue of the relationship between Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous citizens in Canada. And you describe the movement to Indigenous self-government as well as truth and reconciliation uh, movement in recent years. Has all of this produced greater harmony or has it produced greater fragmentation or perhaps it uh, has produced a uh, a new self identity what what actually has this wrought in terms of the canadian identity
1: my answer would be yes all of the above <laughs> <laughs> because we really are in a situation where there is all these things happening concurrently there's expressions of new identity that a lot of canadians through reconciliation are trying to get to a settler Canadians, settler colonialists, who are everybody that wasn't here before the Indigenous peoples. There are frustrations that we can see that, you know, just as recently as what's gone in British Columbia with pipelines, pipeline debates. But there's also steps towards understanding uh, how Canadians can better connect in their shared responsibilities as treaty people with Indigenous peoples. And, you know, the book is at pains to recognize that, uh, you know, this is one of the key challenges that Canadians face going forward. I always say to students, you know, there's the, the big three challenges that we face in the 21st century that are all connected and come very much out of these issues. How Canada reconciles itself with its Indigenous fact, how it addresses climate change, going forward, which is intimately connected to Indigenous issues, and how it also addresses equality and inequality, which, again, is part of that dynamic. And the Indigenous question is something that you see in the news every day. Is it an Indigenous question,
0: or is it a question for the majority of Canadians, or is it a question of the relationship between the two?
1: It's Again, all three, it's an Indigenous question in the sense that it's being framed in the narrative, uh, in the media like that, and I probably misspoke when I say it's an Indigenous question because it's a question for all of us. It's a Canadian question. It's a societal question. I think uh, in the book, I quote Chief Justice, or Supreme Court Justice, Antonio lamar in one of the famous decisions where he said, you know, let's come to terms with the fact that we're all here, we're all part of this. No one's going anywhere, and our purpose here is to try to figure out how we're going to deal with this going forward. Right. Uh, and, you know, the chapter in the book is a, a kind of attempt to provide a narrative of places where we have uh, been successful, in trying to uh, bridge that gap between understandings around uh, colonial settler and Indigenous perspectives on Canada, but other places where it hasn't worked. And there are lots of places where it hasn't worked, unfortunately, but we should also recognize that there are some places where it has, too. I mean, we do have a framework here where uh, land claims and settlements have been part and parcel of the Canadian landscape for the last 50 years, uh, and that there have been some significant advances in that regard. But at the same time, so frustratingly, you know, we can't even get clean, potable water right on northern reserves. So uh, the dynamic is happening where there's some successes, but there's obviously so much that we have to do going forward. And this is an attempt to try to frame the context of where we've been in this issue uh, going forward.
0: Dimitri, you mentioned the pipeline controversy uh, in British Columbia I'd like to talk about resources generally because there was, of course, uh, many, many decades ago the Mackenzie Delta and that controversy about economic development. And of course, Canada has been very reliant on resource development, both of the renewable and non-renewable variety. But in recent years, it's been the oil and gas industry that's been under the microscope. So to what extent has the the environmental movements that emerged in the 1960s and 1970s and then evolved as they've evolved since that time uh, in sometimes in opposition to the industry, at other times in an effort to regulate the industry uh, more effectively, what lessons? can we learn from that earlier history in terms of the conflict between environmentalism on the one hand and the resource extraction industries on the other? Uh,
1: That's a challenging question in the sense that I'm not sure if uh, lessons have been learned given the kind of uh, repetition of issues that we continually face. Uh, You've got not two immovable blocks, but you've got a really situation where Canada is between a rock and a hard place. This is a country that's dependent on resource extraction. You've got uh, provinces like Alberta and Saskatchewan and to a lesser degree Newfoundland, which are highly dependent upon fossil fuel extraction. Uh, You've got other provinces which are able to generate tons of energy through renewables like hydroelectric like Quebec and to a lesser degree Ontario and on top of that you've got a growing recognition since the 1960s of uh, the damage that CO2 emissions have done uh, to the climate more generally and Canada is you know been on the cutting edge of environmental awareness and activism Greenpeace was created in Vancouver with Canadians and Americans. Uh, there's been movements like Pollution Probe. Uh, you know, Canada's on that edge. It's part a reflection of the fact that we are on the knife edge, that as a G7 country that is so dependent on uh, resource extraction, we're facing difficulties. And this goes back to the 1960s and 1970s when the first awareness around pollution, around smog, first appeared uh, right through to pipeline debates up until today. And you know it's a very difficult question to answer because if you look at the approaches that governments more recently have taken, like the Trudeau government, you see an approach that is attempting to do both things, i.e. continue to develop resources to pursue resource extraction through pipeline construction, the oil sands, tar sands, but at the same time, uh, develop policies that will alleviate some of the worst externalities of a carbon economy, a carbon tax, tra- uh, cap and trade, uh, measures that are designed to do this. By doing both things, however, I don't think you're actually advancing the cause. Uh, and this is one criticism uh, that I. I- make in the book and I try not to be partisan or critical and try to be as objective as possible but I can't see when it comes to the Trudeau government how you can continue to advocate for pipelines and resource extraction when you are saying that the climate is a problem. like That carbon has to stay in the ground. Now I know I've gone off a little bit on a tangent in terms of answering your question but uh, the history of this issue is one in which battles over pipelines go back until the 1950s You know, mostly around parliamentary debates, mostly around issues around uh, American investment and American domination. And uh, you fast forward, those issues are still there, but they're also framed within the context of the climate. So,
0: uh, my last theme that I can cover today, as you very clearly point out, internationalism was really the creed of early post-war Canada. What have been the challenges to this foreign policy approach, and I would argue, trade policy approach, since the fall of the Soviet Union?
1: Well, uh, that has been the dynamic that has really unsettled the, the international system and really put Canada on the back foot in many ways. Uh, you know, the Cold War period, uh, kind of mutual assured destruction, was not great, but it was stable, provided some level of stability besides flashpoints like Vietnam or Korea. Uh, Since 1990, though, if you look at the course of international relations, it's been marked by uh, really extremes, up and downs, dramatic events, Canada dealing with a situation where we were able to kind of balance off our dependency on the United States, our close connection to the United States with a multilateral approach. That's changed a little bit because multilateralism is not the same as it once was with the the end of the Cold War. And we have a situation where Canada faces, in the 1990s, predominantly powerful unipolar world led by the United States, which is problematic for Canadians who are already so dependent upon the United States. And then we have a kind of upheavals that start to appear economically in terms of instability that's caused by extreme neoliberalism, the Washington Consensus, which imposes a kind of hardcore new neoliberal market-driven ethos on the planet in terms of economies. And suddenly you have, you know, ups and downs Uh, You have a currency crisis in Mexico or in Argentina or in Japan or in Korea. You have all kinds of uh, recessions that start in the 90s, that, uh, you know, in 2008. So Canada is trying to deal with this situation and it's balancing off its dependency with the United States with a world that is reshaped by 9 11. And the one thing I'll say is Canadians have done a pretty good job trying to find their way in a relatively unstable world, but it's difficult.
0: Well, Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us today. We could have spoken for at least another 30 minutes, I'm sure, but uh, I really do appreciate your time here. My pleasure, Greg. My guest today was Dimitri Anastakis. We talked about his book, Recreation, Fragmentation. And Resistance, Canada Since 1945, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History and McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded at Ryerson University on March 11, 2020. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. We look forward to you joining us again.